the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Pat Williams Power Hour, AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word. This is your hour when Orlando Magic Senior Vice President Pat Williams sits down and speaks with authors who have written books on topics of interest and insight for listeners like you. And now, here's your host, Pat Williams. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome once again to the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour right here. It's AM 990, FM 101.5, The Word in Orlando. We're so delighted you're with us. So is Pete Paquette, who does our engineering. And so is uh, Andrew Herdliska, who produces the show. And I want to introduce you to Lena Abjamara. She's a pediatric ER doctor, now practices telemedicine in her spare time. There's a book out that she's put together. Don't tell anyone you're reading this. Uh, Lena, first of all, welcome to Orlando, and uh, so nice to visit with you. Hope you're doing well. I am, and thank you for having me. It's an honor to be with you. Lena, what's the background of this book? Why was it important to write A Christian's Doctor's Thoughts? Yeah, so the the subtitle is The Christian Doctor's Thoughts on Sex, Shame, and Other Troublesome Issues. And I wrote it because I really believe uh, Christians, the church, have a problem with this right now. Uh, I think our culture has a problem with it, but really this book is written for Christians. And what happened that that tipped me to write it was that uh, I heard a few months ago about yet another pastor, a worship pastor that I knew who had um, fallen in a dramatic way in in, uh, a relationship outside of marriage. And this was a line of people that had back-to-back been very public, and this person I knew. And it was someone that didn't seem like they had that problem in the sense that he was producing worship songs that were incredibly moving and sensitive to the Spirit of God and was leading us into a place of great sensitivity uh, in worship and had been going on for some time, this, this relationship. And it was the, the straw on the camel's back to me. I had had so many stories that I've watched unfold on social media. Of course, so many of us have watched that. And, you know, here and there in the 80s and in the 90s, you'd hear about something and you'd say, wow, like, okay, that shouldn't happen. But, but it seems like in the last decade, at least certainly in the last five years, the frequency and the magnitude of, of the stories of, of leaders in particular of the church and Christian ministries has, has grown so, so rapid and so so public and so shocking and and it hit home i got very um i got very in my spirit i felt like this is something that we need to talk about in a different fashion than we've been talking about in the church as a physician and my background is in emergency medicine it felt like a point of crisis and the more you look at our culture right now the more you see that there is a crisis when it comes to morality sexual purity what used to be unheard of Things we call sexual perversion are now the norm. In fact, the very opposite. If you call things wrong, you're the one who's considered wrong. And while initially, when this movement towards this breakdown in morality started, it was thought of as outside of the church. But as you have observed the last five years, like I have, and some of the Supreme Court changes on the definition of marriage and whatnot, uh, I think it's clear that uh, the church is confused about many things. And we see it by uh, the things that now are happening in churches, uh, in, in, in relationships before marriage, in uh, broken marriages, and of course, uh, in many uh, people's confusion about uh, what the Bible says about even gender identity and same-sex marriage, things that should be obvious if you read the Bible that now people go, well, it's not that obvious. Uh, wow. After all these years, not that obvious. And so really, this book isn't this big, massive, you know, like, here's what the Bible says about these issues. I think there's plenty of those books. I have always felt like the best way to write for me, the way God's wired me and called me is to write my story. And so really, I tell uh, my experience with sexual struggle as a single uh, 50 
uh, one now, but to 50-year-old, you know, in that range, woman who has never married and uh, still never been in, you know, I, my original subtitle that has been tweaked because of the church's inability to stomach certain titles. I think it became evident that the, the original subtitle might push people away from reading it, but really it, the original subtitle was a sexual memoir of a 50-year-old virgin. And uh, currently the subtitle is A Christian Doctor's Thoughts on Sex, Shame, and Other Troublesome Issues. I talk about everything. This is not a book for singles. This is not a book about porn. This is a book about why this battle right now is the battle going on in the church. Christians need to figure out what God—Christians know what God wants in that area. Christians need to understand what's at stake in this battle and fight it with everything we have to be pure and holy before God to come back to a place of revival. So it is a book that hopefully will accomplish those things for those who struggle with sexual sin or are baffled by how to deal with their loved ones who might be uh, now believing things and living in a way that just does not seem to be consistent with anything that was taught them as children growing up. Lena, there are two words uh, that I want you to talk about. They both begin with S. The first, okay. the first word is the word shame. Where, yeah. where does that fit into this discussion? Shame is an interesting concept. You know, I, I, there's a crisis in our culture, uh, and the crisis is, is I, I think, of what's happening right now in the Christian culture and in our American culture. There's, I think, three crises that we see. And the first one sort of brings out this issue of shame in that the first one I would call crisis of cultural shift. These are things I've, I've put together. You know, there's not like I'm quoting myself. <laughs> there isn't any, you know, outside source in this. Maybe there's no science behind it. Maybe it's theory. But I do think the culture has shifted, and it is crisis. And one of those things is, I mean, the concept of you can't put the Ten Commandments in a public space now, but, you know, you are canceled if you have any views that are contradictory to the cultural views on, on uh, sexuality. And uh, so when it comes to shame, one of the things that I've seen in the cultural shift is that we want to destroy shame, right? So on one hand, nobody wants to feel ashamed. It's a bad feeling, and it keeps us from being who we are. You know, we hide in shame. Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 3, after they rebelled against God, hid from God. And so we are familiar with shame. It's part of the broken nature of, of humanity. Uh, but where we used to have correctly placed shame, you know, you understand as a Christian that when you're guilty, you might have some feelings of shame in it. You, that leads you to the cross. Now we want to dis- discard shame. We don't want it to be part of any conversation so that now you're, you know, people talk about like there's no shame at all. You almost look at shame as something that you want to throw out the window. And so rather than embracing uh, shame to the degree that it has to allow us to come back to a place of repentance and then let it go at the foot of the cross. Now we've thrown it out the window so that there's no sense of, in our culture anymore, hey, there might be something here going on that needs to be changed. And so I think our relationship with shame has changed. I think on one hand, it keeps us in a prison if we let it take over. And I think, sadly, that is the plight of many Christians who struggle with private sexual sin, is that you live in shame. You never tell anybody about it. You never experience victory because that shame has blinded you to the nature of the goodness and grace of God. And on the other side of it, there's the other extreme, which has thrown out shame out the window. And that looks at you like you're crazy because you don't enjoy the sexual perversion that has now become the norm in our culture. The second S word secrets. Uh, Yeah. Um, Well, the reason we hear about those stories of imploding Christian leaders that rock our world, and by the way, they're not just stories. They're lives. I mean, every life that is destroyed by sexual sin, which is initially secretive until it becomes known, because we know that every secret will be made known. God gives you grace and mercy to come into the light for a long time sometimes before bringing it to light, but I think also God acts to protect those who might be hurt in that situation, and by God's grace, he brings it to light sooner, (laughs) but never soon enough for the person who's hurting. But with that in mind, um, when you think about the lives that have imploded due to keeping secrets, eventually when the secret comes out, it affects many people. Secrets don't just, they're not, they're not just me, myself, and I, you know, you might keep a secret. Even as a single woman, I talk a lot in the book about some of the sins that single people might go through, um, you know, in the context of what I've gone through. And so without getting into too much detail, you could say, well, you're not hurting anybody. Uh, No, a secret always hurts somebody. 
And uh, when, when these leaders are imploding, like right now, I think of, I told you there's three crises as I see it. The second big crisis that I see, besides the crisis of cultural shift, is the crisis of church deconstruction. People don't want to go to church anymore. They certainly don't trust their leaders. And the, the, that deconstruction hasn't happened because, uh, you know, simply because of uh, sexual sin, but abuse of power and many other things that have been out in the public and talked about. But the reality is in 2023, uh, our relationship as Christians with the church has changed. And I believe a lot of that is because over the years, we've seen what kind of cancer secrets can become. And so secrets and shame go hand in hand. Jesus Christ brings everything to the open, but doesn't just do it in order to hurt us. He does it in order to heal us. And the sooner we understand that, the only way to come to a place of freedom is to step out of darkness into the light. Uh, the sooner we'll find a freedom that is ours in Christ Jesus. Lena, tell us about the excuses we make and the lies we tell ourselves. Well, nobody wants to admit we're wrong. That's the last thing we want to do. When Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden, the first thing Eve did when confronted was to blame, or the first thing Adam did was was to blame Eve, and the first thing Eve did was to blame the serpent. And so we're all, I mean, excuses protect us to a certain degree from admitting uh, how bad we've gotten, right? I mean, I mean, everybody knows we're bad, but you always want to feel better than than you really are. I mean, the whole gospel message is uh, understanding the way to get the good news of the gospel is to recognize that I need help, that things are not good, and um, in my life. And so, I think when you think about excuses, they're they're ways to delay the inevitable of facing the truth, which can be painful. And yet, I tell people, and I've experienced in my life. Uh, that that pain of coming out into the light and bearing the consequences, let's say you are in a place where you might have some consequences in your sin, marriage that needs healing, kids that need, you know, to be walked through the process of whatever it is, all the stuff that happens uh, in, in that setting, that pain of coming to the light and dealing, you know, overcoming your excuses that keep you from living in the light, that pain is minuscule compared to the pain of delaying. Uh, continuing to hide in secret, continuing to create excuses. Uh, eventually, uh, God is calling out your name. Again, I think about the grace of God in Genesis 3, where he goes looking for attitudes. He doesn't do it to punish them. He does it because he loves them. He wants to restore the relationship with them. And so I think um, I think it's time for the church, uh, big church in the U.S., to stop making excuses uh, and to come into the light. And honestly, it is a sensitive topic in that, um, nobody wants to admit that I have a problem with this. So denial is easy. Everybody thinks you're the one with the problem. Men are the one. Single men are the one with the problem. You know, the porn issues are, are restricted to celebrate recovery meetings in the basement of the church somewhere where nobody can see the people. And, and you don't want to admit that you, me, every one of us looking at the statistics right now struggles with some form of exposing ourselves to things that are that we ought not to even talk about in the mainstream media. And it's affected us. We're desexualized. We have this desensitization to all things sexual that it takes a lot to shock us anymore. We need to go back to a place where holiness is more familiar to us and sin is shocking. This is the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. We've got more with Lena. It's AM 990, FM 101.5, The Word, and Orlando. We'll be right back. More of the Pat Williams Hour in just a moment. AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word. You're listening to the Pat Williams Power Hour, AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word. Now, here's Pat. Lena Abajamra is our guest. Her book, don't tell anyone you're reading this. Lena, I I want you to dive into this one, that uh, despite our constant failures as humans, Jesus doesn't ask us to be perfect. He just asks us to be his. Uh, I need you to dive into that for us. Explain. Well, I um, it's probably one of my favorite sentences in the book. And I think that the big, so there's a balance between, you know, grace, receiving it, and abusing it, right? And so you, you seek, you catch Christians on both sides of that equation. There's the one side that's the extreme that's like all grace. No matter what you do, you've been forgiven. Paul the Apostle talks to us about that. We know that that doesn't work because the whole point of salvation is that you've been changed by a Savior who gave everything for you. The other side of it is the other side that says, you know, if you are completely changed, then you don't know Christ. And so 
I think it's both and, honestly. I, I really do. As a human who now has lived, as a physician who's watched people in the healing process of life, which I think is symbolic of so much of our spiritual change. We see it play out in the body. Uh, sometimes change is fast. Sometimes it's slow. Some people come to Christ, addicts, and within a minute of receiving Jesus, don't, they have no desire for any substance anymore that they used to be addicted to. There are others who continue to struggle till the day they die. I don't know why that is. I really don't know. Uh, I, I just know that what God offers us in 2 Corinthians 12 is his sufficient grace in our weaknesses. And in this area right now of sexual purity, I would say, I would say prophetically but also confidently, uh, we are weak in the church right now. I really believe if we really were honest, uh, we are not doing well. Uh, I, why do I know that? Well, because I talk to people in my practice. Uh, I talk to high volumes of people, many of whom are Christians. And I, I know that because we serve as a big group in my practice of Christians. And, and I know what we struggle with. And so when I, when I think about that tension of, you know, the easiest way that Satan gets us is to make us feel like we're too bad for God's goodness. The whole point of grace is that you're never too bad for God's goodness. He died for all of your sin, past, present, and future. And so does, he, does God want us to grow and transform? Of course. That's why he died. He put his spirit in us. But what he does best is love us, love us unconditionally and eternally. And I don't think we really, really believe that. I think deep in all of our spirits is this desire to impress God with how good we've become. Uh, change will come naturally when you're in a healthy uh, place with the Lord where you know that you're loved and where you can experience his presence without constantly cowering in the background going, I wonder, I wonder if he loves me. I wonder if he's going to accept me. I've failed so many times. Will he do it again? And if you are struggling with that, one small tip, read the Gospels. Watch Jesus. See how he deals with people who have been broken and sinful. And then see how naturally when he says to the woman who committed up, you go and sin no more. You can sense it in your bone. You don't know what happened to her down the road. I mean, there's a lot of women who later were, at the, of course, at the, at the, at the, after the resurrection of Christ, there was a woman who came, and many of them were saved from sexual pasts. And, and so change is inevitable in that setting. But ultimately, what frees us to change is the knowledge that we are His forevermore and evermore and evermore. And there is such freedom in the love of God. And I think the more you think into that, swim in that knowledge of His love, the freer you are to abandon those things that you think you need to be happy. Lina, I'm, I'm interested in your background, where you grew up, uh, how you got into the field of medicine, uh, yeah. how your faith walk began. Uh, I, I want to hear this. Uh, I'll briefly, <laughs> we're not on too long, but it's, uh, and I'm old, but I grew up in Beirut, Lebanon, in a home uh, in, in the Civil War in Lebanon, right smack a couple years before the Civil War broke out. And my mother had received Christ, uh, so I grew up under the influence of the evangelical church. In fact, our pastor and his wife were uh, Americans. We were in a, in a missionary alliance church, so I received Christ. I heard the gospel at a very young age. I don't remember how young, but very young. Received Christ as a child. My dad became a Christian midway through life. My parents probably were married about 15 years, and then really lived very faithfully to the, uh, to the Lord until his death five or six years ago, I guess seven years ago now. My mom has been probably the most faithful example of a Christian in my life, and so grew up watching her study the Bible, worship God through the scriptures. I mean, just really a faithful woman of God, and continues to be so even now in her uh, in her old age. And God has been faithful to our family. We moved when I was 15 to Green Bay, Wisconsin. Uh, I was it was my last year of high school. I went to college young, and I my dad was a physician. And so I followed in his footsteps uh, until I told him I was going to practice emergency medicine. He was uh, not as happy about it. He's a surgeon or was a surgeon. And if you know anything about medicine, ER doctors and surgeons are always the nemesis to one another because when you, ER calls you, you have to go into work. And so he got over that disappointment, though. I've had a very, very fulfilling career uh, for 15 years in the ER and then now for the past eight years in telehealth. And so uh, I came to Christ and I've continued to, you know, I love the Lord and that has not changed. I talk about, again, my struggle with, uh, it, it with faith. In my last book, Fractured Faith, I talked about uh, some of the struggles I had with the Lord as I faced disappointments in my life. And this one even builds on the other in that I think when you are deeply disappointed with God, the natural thing to do is to run to places of comfort. And one of those places are things that make your body 
feel good. And uh, and so I, I leave that open because for some it's over-exercising, for others it's overeating, for others, you know, again, you go through all of the vices that we pick up over life and they're all ways to try to numb the pain that we go through. And so whatever the source of pain uh, in your life, I think, again, I think uh, Jesus is the balm that heals it. But sometimes I've found that you have to walk in those places of pain enough to uh, to receive that. So even though I've been a Christian uh, most of my life, I would say, uh, I my faith, uh, well, I grew up in a, there was a phase of, of the 80s and 90s where many Christians were in a very legalistic type, you know, fundamentalist background. I happened to be in that sort of setting. Uh, but now uh, I think my faith has been it continues to be purified, and um, I, I think about the way that I used to believe in my teens and my 20s, and it's the same gospel, but there was a legalism to it, a, a desire to, to perform for God in order to get his favor, even though I knew I was saved by grace, that God has been slowly chipping away in my life. Uh, so I love uh, the outcome of the struggle. Of I wrestle with faith. I make no bones about it. I write very... Uh, sometimes painfully, but um, but I have found a deep and secure walk with Christ that I would not exchange for anything. Lena, I want you to talk about uh, Power Ministries. Uh, as I understand it, you provide medical care and humanitarian help to Syrian refugees and yes. others in distress areas. I want to hear yeah. about. Th- I want to hear about this. Yes, sir. I. Uh, 2014, when the Syrian refugee crisis started, was a year after I left the mega church that I had been serving in as a women's ministry director, and I had uh, was practicing medicine at the time. But my dream was to teach the Bible and write about God, and uh, when I started my writing career. And when I left that church because of abuse of power and eventual implosion of the leadership, I ended up writing a book about that story, Fractured Faith. In the aftermath of that, I thought my ministry had ended. Because that was my goal, was to teach women the Bible. And, and now I was not even at that church. What was I going to do the rest of my life? My dreams were shattered. And in the aftermath of that, the Lord, as he always does, he uses the failures in our life, the disappointments in our life, to redirect our calling. And so he put me in a place of uh, traveling to the Middle East with some friends to see what was happening with the Syrian refugees. And within a few months, I ended up uh, going with a dentist. I ran the medical clinics, and he ran the dental clinics. And we did that. Four times a year for the first few years of the crisis, we continue to go. They're there now. Uh, I'll be, I, I go now three or four times a year. And over the years, the Lord has expanded my ministry, Living With Power. Our work in Lebanon has grown tremendously. We now have uh, clinics on the ground. We give out free meds to thousands of people every month. We could, the, the work has changed. It's no longer a you know, quote-unquote disaster like it was in 2014, but we now serve both the Syrian refugees and the Lebanese people that themselves have gone through crisis. And in the last year, we started also extending the aid to uh, the Ukrainian refugees. We want to help people who need hope in the direst places uh, where God allows us to move in. And everything we uh, really do, like the still work full-time, so really our ministry is primarily the books, the speaking, all the things that I do uh, for God's glory, I hope and pray, uh, will uh are going towards helping the work that we do in the Middle East and in the Ukraine. And so I always like to tell people that, like, I know that that's, you know, a lot of people have, have seen um, abuse of, of, of finances in ministry, and I pray uh, and seek that God will continue to hold us accountable in that. But also being a physician, I think I've had the freedom of being able to say, Lord, it's all yours, and you've blessed me to be able to support myself. So now what can we do to show the world of the love of Christ. And so it's been an honor to be able to do this work. I know there are a lot of people with different backgrounds that might not be able to do what I've done, uh, but it is um, it has been a gift to be able to uh, freely minister and uh, just to continue to give back to people of my country where I came from. I could still be in Lebanon, stuck in a culture and an economy that is devastated uh, by pain. And instead, the Lord has brought me to a land here of abundance and goodness and uh, and so here we are, right? And our problem now here is not so much financial in the United States, but uh, I really think uh, our morality, our, our our culture is struggling in um, in our faith as a culture. And I think uh, and I hope that the work that I'm doing in writing and in teaching the Bible uh, will uh, stir Christians back to a place of revival and uh, intimacy with God. Well, I know we've got 60 seconds left. Summarize our chat. Summarize your book for us, please. The summary of the book is that nothing ever, nothing will ever satisfy you like Jesus will. 
Uh, you will go up and down and left and right, trying everything and anything to do so. And if you've ever felt like you're alone in this struggle or too ashamed to admit it to someone, run and get this book because you will see, first of all, that you're not alone. Uh, and secondly, that God in his absolute grace can still use you magnificently, no matter where you've been, no matter what, you've go what you're going through. And that there is a God who loves truth and who will do whatever it takes for you to see that truth. And so whether you're the one struggling or whether your family members are going through a difficult time, I hope and pray that your reading this book will encourage you, but also be your companion on the road to greater freedom in Christ. Lina Abujamra, our guest. The book, Don't Tell Anyone You're Reading This. Uh, this is the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. We gather every weekend like this. We're always so pleased when you elect to join us here on AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word in Orlando. Stay with us. We've got more. More of the Pat Williams Hour in just a moment. AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word. You're listening to the Pat Williams Power Hour, AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word. Now, here's Pat. Lena Abujamra, our guest in that first segment in Marco Island, Florida, talking about her book, Don't Tell Anyone You're Reading This. Well, we go from Marco Island to Mount Vernon, Illinois. Ryan Burge is there. He's an assistant professor of political science at Eastern Illinois University. His book is called The Nuns, Where They Came From, Who They Are, and Where They Are Going. Ryan, welcome to Orlando. How are you? Thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it. How did this book come about? Well, uh, I was a guy who just posted graphs on Twitter for a long, long time. And um, one day I got a hold of some new data from the General Social Survey, which is this really good data set we've had going back in 1972. And I posted a graph uh, that showed the trend line of American religion over the last 50 years or so. And the headline was that the nuns are now larger than any other religious group. And boy, that just went viral. I mean, it went everywhere. Everyone wanted to talk about it. Everyone was calling me about it. I was in the New York Times and the Washington Post and CNN and the Times of London, and it, it just went on and on and on. And uh, when I got approached to write a book about a year later, I wanted to write about something that I knew that other people were concerned with or cared about or wanted to read about. And so that was the nuns. Everyone wanted to talk to me about the nuns. So I thought, you know what, I'll compile all the data I have and all the thoughts I have. Uh, about the nuns into a, a single book, and it came out in 2021, and it, it sold a lot of copies and generated a lot of conversation and got me into a lot of rooms with a lot of interesting people, and it's really kind of taken on a life of its own. Well, let's dive in. Chapter one, what does the American religious landscape look like? Question mark. That's how you open? Yeah. Uh, uh, tell us. Tell us about it. Yeah, so um, today, about, about depending on what survey you look at, about 30% of Americans identify as religiously unaffiliated. In 1972, it was 5% of Americans. Uh, in 1991, it was 7% of Americans. So it, it barely increased between 1972 and 1991. It just kind of slowly trickled up for 20 years. But from that point forward, from 1991 forward, it's just like a hockey stick. I mean, things just took off. And now the, the share of Americans who are non-religious rises every single year. Uh, like I said, about 30% of American adults identify as, as non-religious now. Amongst the youngest adult Americans, Generation Z, it's closer to 45% uh, of them identify as non-religious. Um, other religious groups, like, for instance, evangelicals are about 20 21% of America. Catholics are about in the same category, around 20 22% of the American population. Um, mainline Protestants, which are people like United Methodists, Episcopalians, United Church of Christ. In the 1950s, uh, the data says that about half of all Americans were affiliated with a mainline church. Um, in, 19, in 1975, it was 30%, so it declined 20% already. But over the next 30 years, it continued to drop. And today in America, only about 10% of Americans uh, are mainline Protestants. And in the future, they're probably going to be less than 5% of Americans. They're, they're easily seeing the biggest decline uh, of any religious group in America. The evangelicals are sort of holding steady, and Catholics are doing relatively okay. 
Um, other religious groups are incredibly small in the American religious landscape. About 1% of Americans are Latter-day Saints, 1% are Muslim, 1% are Hindu. Um, so, you know, most of America still, even today, is Christian. And if you add the Christians and the nuns together, that gets you about 90% of all Americans fit in the Christian or nun category today. Let's move on to topic number two. A social scientist tries to explain religious disaffiliation. What what is what does that mean? So the question I always get when I show the graph of you know five percent to thirty percent is why you know why is this happening to America? What is what are the causal factors? And to also be clear, I'm I'm a pastor myself, and uh, my church when I got there in 2006 had about 50 people, and today it's closer to 10 people, and we're likely not going to exist in the next 12 months because we just can't financially afford it. So this is not just an academic exercise for me. So really answering the question why is not just explaining to other people why, it's explaining to myself why. So that chapter is the one I'm probably the most proud of uh, in the entire book and because I really try to pull in a lot of social science theory from all kinds of angles about why disaffiliation is happening. The, the first thing I talk about there is secularization, which is this big fancy academic word for the idea that as societies become more economically advanced and uh, educationally advanced, they become less religious. And Western Europe is the prime example of that. You know, lots of countries in Western Europe are almost completely non-religious. Now. France is less than 10%. So maybe that's what's happening in America. We got too much education. We got too much income. And now we're, we're leaving religion behind. So that's, that's one possible explanation. Another, which is really interesting, is that maybe people have just been lying to us on surveys for a long time, and now they're not lying anymore. Um, it's called social desirability bias. It's just the idea that if you ask a sensitive question on a survey, you're going to lie. You're going to give the answer that people want to hear, not what is the actual truth. And people lie about all kinds of stuff. They lie about drug use. They lie about sexual activity. They lie about their views on race and gender. But they also lie a ton about religion. Uh, and we know that for a fact because there's been studies done where they did a survey uh, in this county in Ohio, and about 40% of Americans said uh, on that county in Ohio said they went to church every week. And when they actually counted, it was only about 20% of those people uh, were actually going to church every week. So maybe what's been happening is we've been we've never been that religious. We just lied about it a whole bunch. And now modern surveys are just getting better at you know figuring out who's lying and who's not. The last one I'll go with is is partisanship. Um, there's something called the God gap, which is the idea that the Democratic Party has increasingly become the party of non-religious Americans. Um, almost 45% of all Biden voters in 2020 were atheist agnostic or had no religion in particular. And it's a very good chance in his, in his re-election bid that half of all his voters will be nuns. 75% um, of Republicans are white Christians. It's 37% of Democrats are white Christians. It's really, really hard today for a white Christian, especially a white evangelical conservative Catholic, to be a Democrat. Um, so what we're seeing is liberals are trending towards the, the non-religious angle, and conservatives are staying religious at much higher rates. And so that's driven a lot of people off. Who they vote for determines what we're realizing is that people pick their church based off their politics. And if they're Democrats or liberals, they tend to walk away from church entirely because they just don't have any sort of strong attachment. Um, the other things, a couple of things I talk about in the book, the internet, um, the lack of trust in institutions, the breakdown of the American family. And there's all kinds of other interesting possible explanations for non-religion rising so rapidly in America. Now, <clears throat> I want you to talk about the demographics of disaffiliation. Yeah. What's, what's that mean? Um, what's that mean? Yeah, so I wanted to really lay out a bunch of data about you know, who is leaving, right? So, you know, the perception is that, that non-religious people are like your philosophy professor in college with the elbow patches, with a PhD. You know, he's the guy who like leads the nuns charge. But that's really not what's happening. Um, when a group gets as large as this, when it gets to 30% of the population, it has to touch every aspect of American life. So, you know, every racial group is more likely to be none today than it was 15 years ago. Every age group, is more likely to be none today than it was 15 years ago. Every gender is more likely to be none. Even political parties, Republicans, are significantly more likely to be religious, but they're becoming more nuns every year. So it's really affecting every aspect of American society. So just some basic statistics on that. Um, the, the, there are three types of nuns. We'll talk about that in a second. Most nuns are not atheist or agnostic. 
I think that's something that, that we have this misconception is that when I talk, when I say the word none, people automatically go towards the idea of atheism. And that's actually not true. Um, it's actually a, several different groups added together. But if you look at, for instance, the rate of African-Americans who are nuns has gone from 21 percent in 2008 to 36% today. That matches the white rate. Asians, 44% of Asian Americans now are atheist, agnostic, or nothing in particular. Hispanics are actually the group that is the least likely to be nuns. 33% of Hispanics um, are non-religious compared to 36% of whites and 44% of Asians. So something else interesting that people don't realize about disaffiliation um, the assumption is that the people who have higher levels of education are more likely to be non-religious, and that's actually not true at all. Um, if you look at every data set that exists, it's almost impossible to find any connection between education and non-religion that's in the positive direction. Um, if you look at religious attendance, the people who are the most likely to go to church every Sunday are those with graduate degrees. The people who are the least likely to go to church every Sunday are those without a high school diploma. I mean, it's consistent across um, belief, behavior, and belonging. The education makes people actually more religious, not less religious. And one more thing I'll add to that. When we look at age, we think about this as a young person phenomenon. But even if you look at older generations, okay, even like, you know, the boomers, um, as they've aged over the last 15 years, they are more likely to be nuns today than they were 15 years ago. So this is not just young people growing up and leaving religion behind in their 20s. These are people in their 30s and 40s and 50s and 60s and 70s who are less religious today than they were a decade ago. So it really hits every aspect of American society. My guest in um, Mount Vernon, Illinois, he's a professor of political science at Eastern Illinois University. The book, The Nuns, Where They Came From, Who They Are, and where they are going. Ryan, um, tell me how your professorship of political science and your pastorship work together. I'm, I'm intrigued. Yeah, that's, I don't really know how to answer that question, Pat, because it's all I've ever known. Um, I started being a pastor, I was a youth pastor starting when I was 20 years old. I was an undergraduate at that point, and I was just doing it because I needed a summer job, and I sort of felt somewhat inclined towards the ministry, and it was supposed to just be a three-month internship, and it turned into a three-year youth pastor position at a little church about 25 miles from where I was born. And then um, when I went to graduate school, I thought, you know what, maybe I'll be a pastor. Maybe I'll pick up a church. And so I'm in the American Baptist tradition, and we don't have a ton of requirements for being pastor, except if the church calls you, that's all it takes. And they call me. Um, and so I... Uh, Became the pastor at 23 years old of a little church in Marion, Illinois, called Water Street Baptist Church. I was there for a year, and then I actually quit that job to um, devote more of my time to my graduate studies. And then another church called me and asked me if I would be their pastor. I actually just preach every Sunday. And uh, somehow that turned into being the interim pastor. Somehow that, that turned me into the, the actual pastor. And now I've been there for almost 17 years. I'm the longest-serving pastor in the history of the church. It's been around since 1868. Um, I think it makes me a better professor to be a pastor uh, because I really care about my students. I, I want them to succeed. I like mentoring. I like all the things that, that make a pastor a pastor. I just think it makes me a better researcher because I understand religion not as some sort of cold, calculated outsider position, but I also think about it as an insider because I see it every single day of my life. What am I experiencing personally? And what is that? And how does the data reflect what I'm seeing in my own personal life? Ryan Burge is our guest. We've got another segment with Ryan. Stay with us. It's the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. AM 990, FM 101.5, The Word in Orlando. We'll be right back. More of the Pat Williams Hour in just a moment. AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word. You're listening to the Pat Williams Power Hour. AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word. Now, here's Pat. Ryan Burge is with us. He's a professor at Eastern Illinois University. We're talking about his book, The Nuns. And Ryan, nuns are not all created equal. You do a whole chapter on that. What's what's that about? Yeah, that's. I think if, if there's any sort of uh, thing that you should take away from the book, which you take a lot away from the book, obviously, because I think it's a valuable book, but the thing that really kind of shines through is the idea that most nuns are not atheists. So 
In, in surveys, we ask you, what is your present religion of any? And you get about 12 options to respond to that. And you get, you know, Protestant, Catholic, Mormon, uh, Orthodox, uh, Hindu, Buddhist, Muslim. Um, and the last couple options are atheist, agnostic, or nothing in particular. And what we see in the data is about 30% of Americans are non-religious. Pick one of those three options. But what's really interesting is the majority of those nuns, those non-religious people, pick the nothing in particular box. They don't pick the atheist or agnostic box. So most nuns are nothing in particular. What's really interesting about that is we think that atheist agnostics, we describe them as secular people. So they've, they've, they've cast off the religious worldview and they've replaced it with a secular worldview, right? So they think about science and rationality and all those kind of things. For nothing in particular people, they've thrown off the religious worldview, but they haven't really replaced it with anything else. So they're really non-religious. They haven't, they, they're defined by what they're not, not by what they are. And most um, nuns are nothing in particular. There's so many interesting differences, let's say, between an atheist and a nothing in particular. They're not even on the same planet in terms of demographics. For instance, over 50% of atheists have a four-year college degree. They're one of the most educated groups in America today. Agnostics are not far behind. About 48% of them have a four-year college degree. But amongst nothing in particular, only 25% of them have a four-year college degree. They're actually one of, if not the least educated religious group in America today. So, you know, comparing an atheist at 50% to a nothing in particular at 25% is totally, you know, inappropriate. So if you look at economics, one-third of nothing in particulars make $50,000 a year or less and have a high school diploma or less, one-third of them. Amongst atheists, it's only 12%. So economically, educationally, they're in completely different worlds. Um, in terms of politics, atheists are the most politically active group in America today. They're more likely to go to a meeting, a protest. They're more, more likely to attend a rally. They're more likely to put up a political yard sign. Um, they're more likely to donate to a candidate. Almost half of all atheists donated to a candidate in 2020. The group that's the least likely to engage in politics are nothing in particular. They hardly ever and even do basic stuff like putting up political yard signs. So really the, the, the narrative that emerges out of that is that atheists are incredibly doing well economically, educationally, socially, politically. They're very involved in their community. Nothing in particular are doing very poorly educationally and economically, and they're not engaged. They're almost they're they're adrift in the American social landscape. They're not going to things. They're not joining things. They're not part of things. I feel like they're disconnected. They're left out, left behind, lost, and they're overlooked in the discourse. We talk a lot about atheism. We don't hardly ever talk about nothing in particular. No one advocates for them, and they're growing. Over 20% of Americans say are nothing in particular. It's the fastest growing religious group in America, and yet no one talks about them. Now, <clears throat> let's move on to topic number five, Ryan. Pandemic. Punctuated equilibrium or business as usual? You like that title, Pat? That's a good one. Wow. What's that mean? Yeah, I'll translate. Yeah. Yeah, a punctuated equilibrium is this fancy social science term that basically says there are times in a, a, the life of a country in which rapid things rapidly change for a bunch of reasons. For instance, like after 9-11, we rapidly changed our defense of our country. We added the TSA and the screenings, and we added the Department of Homeland Security. Lots of things changed there in response to an event. Um, COVID obviously was a, a tremendously disruptive event in every aspect of American life. I don't think people remember this very much, but it happened right before Easter in 2020 that we went into lockdown. There were probably fewer people in church across America in Easter in 2020 than at any point in American history because of the lockdown. So it had a huge impact on religion. People who have been going every Sunday could not go to church for six weeks, eight weeks, maybe even three months. So, you know, did that have a huge disruptive effect on American religion? And I, so the purpose of that chapter was Really dig deep into the data to see if it's accelerated trends, if it's slowed down trends. Are Americans more religious post-COVID or less religious post-COVID? The data actually says that what we're seeing right now is just a continuation of business as usual. You know, we've been declining. Religion has been declining in every possible way over the last 40 or 50 years, and COVID did not slow it down, nor did it speed it up. We're seeing this continuing continuation of lower attendance of more people identifying as non-religious. 
What's difficult about this is if you talk to certain pastors, you get totally different stories, because I do that a lot. And I'll have some pastors say, oh, we have more people now than we had before COVID. And then I had talked to other pastors go, no, we're down 30 or 40 percent in terms of attendance and giving um, post-COVID. It really depends a lot on things like what is the average age of your congregation? If you've got a younger congregation, you probably bounce back a lot faster. If you had an older congregation, you probably bounce back a lot slower because people were more hesitant to come back. And unfortunately, a lot of people died during COVID, not just from COVID, but from other things. You know, we had people in our church die. We couldn't do funerals for them because of the lockdown. So, you know, it's really a lumpy story uh, about what America looks like post-COVID. I think it's just continuing the trends we've already seen, though. We are slightly less religious than we were, you know, before COVID, and that will continue on, you know, for the immediate future. Next topic for you, uh, Ryan, what we can change and what we cannot. Yeah, so um, I opened that chapter by talking about the issue of globalization, uh, which is the idea that jobs are leaving America and going overseas. And it seems like every politician, whether it be Democrat, Republican, Independent, or somebody else, they talk about how they're going to bring American jobs back. You know, they're going to bring them back on American shores. And every time you look at that, you realize that that's almost an impossible task. You know, there's some jobs that left America that will never, ever come back because it just doesn't make a whole lot of sense for them to come back to America. And every time we try to create policy to bring them back to America, it inevitably fails on both sides of the aisle. Secularization was going to happen to America. We were going to be less religious in the future than we were in the past because that's the path that every other industrialized nation has taken before us. Um, so, you know, this, there's, we have a lot of headwinds right now in the American religious landscape. We don't have a lot of wind at our back. We have a lot of wind at our face, and we need to recognize that. So a couple things we need to think about. One is that we need to think about the partisanship of our churches. Um, I think a good pastor will afflict the comfortable and comfort the afflicted uh, when it comes to politics. And just telling people what they want to hear politically all the time is probably not what Jesus wants us to do as pastors. So Give, give the Democrats a hard time and give the Republicans a hard time because neither of them represent perfectly what the Bible teaches us about all kinds of things. So, you know, being bipartisan or nonpartisan is a better way forward. But we also need to think a lot about the horizontal dimension of church, which is the idea that church is a, an opportunity for people to gather together and hang out, have a good time. And so, you know, every event at the church does not need to be evangelistic. It doesn't need to be focused on the theological or Bible study or book study or whatever. Just create spaces and opportunities for people in church to hang out, barbecues, carnivals, uh, back-to-school bash, you know, just potlucks, just an opportunity for people to come to church, sit around a meal, enjoy each other's company, and stay as long as they'd like without any sort of ulterior motive. If pastors think about that more, I think you're going to get a lot more people in your building, and they might come for the wrong reason, which is like free food and giveaways, but they'll probably stay for the right reasons once they realize your congregation is good people who are just trying to live life as best they can together. What do you want everyone who's listening, Ryan, to take from all this? The one thing I want people to know is— What do we do with this? the not the, the the nothing in particular is a group I was telling you about I think are the most important group in American religion today they are not anti-religion that's really really important one third of them of nothing in particular say religion is somewhat or very important in their lives so they're not amongst atheists it's three percent so you know you've got to think about this is 20 percent of America one in five American adults are nothing in particular in the book I talk about this this data set where we track people over a nine-year period of time and amongst atheists who were atheists in 2011, almost all of them were atheists still in 2020. Amongst agnostics, almost all of them were agnostics or atheists in 2020. Amongst nothing in particulars, 20% of them who were nothing in particular became a Christian by 2020. So they are open to the idea of coming back to religion. It's just the church needs to find ways to show them the value of religion and why they should be part, become part of their religious community. I, I, this is not a lost cause. There's a lot of things in our way, but not everything in our way, and there's always reason for hope. Now, <clears throat> Ryan, if I'm a high school senior uh, deciding where to go to college, why would I pick, pick Eastern Illinois University? Because you get to learn under my tutelage. <laughs> like that's the, isn't that the best reason? Well, I will say Eastern's a great school. It's a liberal arts school in the middle of the state. It's a small, we have small class sizes. 
Like my Congress class has 19 students in it right now. And really? that's pretty typical for us. So it's not big lecture halls. The professors really honestly care about you. We want to see you succeed. We have a, an undergraduate program and a graduate program that I oversee. And we put a lot of students in really good jobs in all sectors of the American economy. Well, I'm so delighted to meet you, Ryan. Uh, what's next for you? Do you uh, do you enjoy writing? Do you have another book in your pipeline? I do. Uh, I had a book that just came out called The Great Dechurching with uh, two pastors from Orlando, actually. Uh, Michael Graham and Jim Davis uh, came out about a month ago. Uh, I have a book. I'm, I'm working on a textbook right now called The American Religious Landscape, Facts, Trends in the Future. And I just got a Templeton grant for about $350,000 to do the largest ever survey of non-religious Americans called Making Meaning in a Post-Religious America, and that's going to result in a 20,000-person survey in a book about the motivations, fears, you know, future of non-religion in the United States. Wow. Ryan Burge has been our guest, and what a guest he has been. Uh, find out more about him and, and learn about these books he's putting out. Folks, we're back next weekend for more. This is the Pat Williams Saturday Power, Power Hour. And you're tuned in to AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word in Orlando. That's a good place to keep your dial all week long. You can't go wrong there. Uh, have a wonderful week ahead. We'll see you next weekend. God bless. Thank you for joining us for this week's edition of the Pat Williams Power Hour. Join us again next week at this time, where faith comes by hearing. AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com. <laughs> 